Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Good morning. Hey, just to piggyback on what Grace was saying, this morning we broke another record out at Sun City, so even more people were not allowed to have there. But uh, all right, in two weeks, though, we are moving to this new facility. We're so excited. And I got to tell you, just yesterday I was talking with my wife. I am really, really pumped about this message today. It has the power to radically transform every single one of our lives if we put it into practice. And let me begin with this. A lot of times in my life, I have the sense that there's something I ought to do, or maybe I have a sense of the kind of person I want to become, but then I get stopped by this little two-word phrase, but I, but I. For example, I know how to work out and get in shape, but I feel kind of tired, right? I know that it would be great to join a small group and form deep relationships with people, but I am kind of introverted. Yeah, I would love to live relaxed and be confident in life, but I worry. I would love to get my finances in order, be generous, but I spend too much. I I know that I should eat kale and quinoa and tofu, but I love butter and sugar and bacon. Preach, yeah. (laughs) But I is what you might call a defeater belief. Yeah, it not only keeps you from succeeding at what really matters. It'll keep you from even trying. Then you'll never know if you could have done it. But I, but I, but I, I can't do it. Interestingly enough, that little phrase, but I, occurs a whole number of times in the Bible as a kind of reason or excuse for not doing something that God has called somebody to do. I actually ran across a list of these but I's from the Bible. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses says, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God goes to Gideon and says, I want you to deliver my people from the Midianites. And Gideon says, but I am the least in my family. God goes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to prophesy and to speak my word to my people. And Jeremiah says, but I do not know how to speak. I am only a child and too young. Esther, go to the king and save Israel. But I have not been called by the king for 30 days. Abraham, become the father of a great nation, but I am too old. Peter, cast your nets on the other side of the boat and I'll do a miraculous thing for you. But, 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 but I tried all night, over and over and over again. We see those words, but I, but I, but I can't, but I won't, but I shouldn't. And it's so, so fascinating to me that God rarely ever, rarely ever disagrees with any of those statements. He doesn't say, Moses, you're a pretty good speaker. He doesn't say, Abraham, after all, you're you're not all that old. He never disputes their inadequacy. Humanly, we often do. We often engage in what you might call the denial of inadequacy. Oh, no, 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 you can do this. You're amazing. That was actually a technique in the ancient world where Paul was writing. Paul writes to this church at Corinth, and Corinth is really tough on people. There's a lot of pressure in that society. Very high standards, okay? There was a saying there that only the tough survive in Corinth. It'll eat you up and spit you out. 
And apparently the people who were a part of this little church in Corinth would not have ranked very high on the adequacy scale. They were not very impressive people by Corinthian standards. And there was ancient advice that was actually written to speakers or writers that if you were trying to win a following, you're trying to gain the approval of an audience, that one of the techniques you need to use is to be sure to heap praise on them. Right, make sure you recognize, you tell them how intellectual they are. Tell them how influential they are. Tell them how well-connected they are, how powerful they are. That was a technique in the ancient world. So with all of that as a backup now, try to imagine how that church in Corinth felt when Paul's letter was read out loud to them as a congregation for the first time, especially as they hear Paul's description of them at the beginning of this letter. He starts with this. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now that was an odd way to address a crowd back in that day. Paul doesn't start with, hey, Corinth, you've got it, man. You got high IQ, high EQ. Right? You got a lot of resources, a lot of connections, a lot of potential. Corinth, you're killing it. God is so excited to have you on the team now. No, instead, Paul actually invites them to reflect on what we might call the review of personal inadequacy. Corinth, wise? Mm, not so much. Influential? Mm, not so much. You know, great gene pool, well-born? Not really. Paul is incredibly candid about this. He leads with this. He invites them to reflect on this. But hear me on this. The implications he draws from this, though, are remarkable. See, Paul doesn't say, hey, Corinth, you're not all that, so kind of lower your expectations. Don't dream big. Don't expect to do marvelous things for God or incredible things in this world. He doesn't go there. He also doesn't say, well, at least a few of you are smart and rich, and we can kind of build stuff off that. Now he says, you can expect great things now because God is up to something that nobody could have anticipated and nobody could have done but God. But God chose the foolish things. Literally, the Greek text there just says the foolish. It could also be the foolish ones or the foolish people. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, he's quoting from Jeremiah here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jeremiah had said a long time earlier, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Now, there are two words that are the turning point of this whole passage. They're what changed everything in Paul's life. They can be the turning point in your life as well, if you want it to be. They're the words, but God. Right, there's but I, but I, but I. And then there's but God. Paul is saying, but God is now doing in Corinth with you what God began with Jesus on the cross. That is overturning human expectations, reversing who matters and who doesn't, elevating the lowly, changing death into life, turning guilt into innocence, taking what the world regards as abject failure and turning it into glorious victory. If you remember nothing else from this message today, please take those two words with you, but God. 
In fact, let's say them out loud together with passion. You ready? But God. One more time. But God. Yeah, but God means that this world does not get the last word on who you are or what you become or what you might do. This world may say your situation is never gonna change. The world may tell you that your lack of education will always embarrass you. Your addiction will always enslave you. Your depression will always defeat you. Your failure will always define you. Your past will always haunt you. Your future will always frighten you. But God says otherwise. But God begs to differ. But God. That phrase, it gets used over and over and over again in the Bible. But I, but I, but I, I know. But God, but God, but God. You know, Joseph said to his brothers who, for crying out loud, sold him, their very own brother, into slavery. He said this to them. He said, but God. See, years later, when he understood it from a different perspective, he said to his brothers, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. Guess what? It did great good. The psalmist said, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. But God. So folks, stop excusing yourself. Stop letting yourself off the hook. Stop whining about your own inadequacy that just keeps you from God's calling in your life potentially. But I, but I, but I, I know we all say that. All right, I tried to make this really memorable here. You ready for our main point today? God is bigger than your butt, okay? <laughs> Would you write that down? <clears throat> We're gonna say it to our neighbor in just a second. So make sure you spell that last word correctly or you may doubt it with some of you guys. Are you ready? God is bigger than your butt. Okay, turn to the person next to you. Let them know. I've been waiting for months to share this with you. You won't get this emotion. That is the bottom line, people. I know, that was bad. I just don't want you to forget this. God is bigger than your butt. Uh, of course, people, of course you're not smart enough. Of course you're not strong enough. Of course you're not good enough. But God, but God, but God has chosen the foolish and the weak, the lowly and the meek, the too shy and the too loud, the not very polished, the not very well-connected, the not very connected, accomplished, wonderful, whatever. God has chosen them. So that whatever's going on in your life, in your heart, in your job, with your spouse, with your family, with your money, with your children, with your health, even if it looks really, really bad, I know, I know, I know. But God, but God, but God. I tell you, sin, death, pain, hell, they're all very real, but they're not final. <laughs> because the power of the cross and the resurrection is not yet done remaking this sorry world. And Paul brings this to Corinth, to the lowly, to the not very wise, to the not very influential. You think our culture is tough today? It has nothing on Corinth. I mean, Corinth was so competitive that literally the slaves would compete with each other within the same household just to see who looks the most impressive, has the greatest achievements, the most attractive. But God says otherwise about every human being. There is nobody too lowly. In the Old Testament, when an unlikely guy by the name of David gets anointed as king, 
God's prophet Samuel said, people look at the outward appearance. Corinth looked at the outward appearance. Our culture looks at the outward appearance, doesn't it? What are your degrees? How smart are you? How attractive are you? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is when you're able to look beyond outward appearance, to look, to love, to interact with people for who they truly are, to relate to their heart, their soul. Now you might think, well, maybe the church at Corinth had a lot of lowly people who were inadequate, but surely Paul had a lot of confidence in his adequacy. He was a brilliant, educated man. Well, this is where it gets really weird in Paul's writings. See, there were a lot of wannabe leaders. There were a lot of self-proclaimed apostles who came to Corinth. You know what they did? They tried to pull people away from Paul and Paul's teachings, particularly the message of the crucified Jesus and the cross, that at the center of everything is this self-sacrificing love and humility that turned everything upside down, that servanthood is really greatness. Ooh, they didn't like that message. So you know what they did? They compared their ministry to Paul's. That's what leaders like that will do. They said they could work greater miracles than Paul. They were perceived to be considerably more eloquent than Paul. They had these wealthy financial backers, these sponsors who would give them all sorts of money. Paul wouldn't even touch that. He wouldn't even go there. So Paul, he's writing to this church in Corinth in part to bring them back to the message of the lowly Jesus and the cross. And you would expect Paul to persuade them to listen to him, to follow him, to make a list of all of his ministry credentials, his achievements, right? Number of souls saved, number of churches planted, number of sermons preached, uh, number of letters written because he's writing the New Testament for crying out loud. He does none of that. (laughs) Instead, to commend himself to them, he does one of the oddest things in the history of human literature. Listen to what he says. He says, I have been in prison more frequently. Okay, who brags about that, right? Huh? I've been flogged more severely. Good for you, Paul. What? Been exposed to death again and again. Do you understand? Those were not sources of success or impressiveness in the ancient world, especially not in Corinth. He lists his failures and his problems and his rejections and his humiliations. It's a celebration of personal weakness and inadequacy. And it reaches its completion with this. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God does not. Now I need to pause here because this is quite a staggering statement right here in the Bible that I think a lot of commentators brush off in the English language. Apparently Paul had a problem. He had this tendency to become conceited. Anybody in here conceited? Okay, nobody, virtually nobody. All right, you're all better than Paul, way to go. Well, well, Paul had that problem and it got so bad, he was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, commentators over the centuries, they've been so quick to make guesses about what this thorn in the flesh, what it might've been, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing when you look at all the commentators, you know, whether, you know it was a vision problem or, or it was anxiety or it was a speech defect like stuttering. It was, it was a weight problem. People, the emphasis in this verse though, it's not on the thorn in the flesh. It's actually much worse than that. The emphasis in this text is on the messenger of Satan. Greek term messenger is angelos. 
we would naturally translate that as angel. It's an angel of Satan. This is a spiritual attack, people, a spiritual thorn in the flesh. In fact, let me read you a more literal translation from the Greek. See if this doesn't change the emphasis of the text for you. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, an angel of Satan, demon, that he might torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take him away from me. That's the more natural rendering, that Satan assigned one of his fallen angels to go after Paul. Now, how that happened, how that affected Paul, how that manifests itself in his life, we don't know, doesn't say. But this is clearly a spiritual attack that Paul wanted to be freed from, but God said, "Uh uh-uh. That's gonna stay to keep you humble, to keep you dependent upon me. And even though he pleaded for deliverance, he didn't get it, did he? So you could even say that Paul's prayers failed. And meanwhile, these so-called self-proclaimed apostles come to Corinth with strength, success, eloquence, wealthy poster boys for God and God's life. And Paul, his life is like a train wreck, right? He is a beaten, imprisoned, whipped, tent-making, conceit-prone, thorn-carrying, demon-afflicted, prayer-failing, self-confessed weakling. And you're gonna lead with that? Those are your credentials? I mean, why on earth would anybody ever talk that way about themselves? Well, one reason and two words, but God. But God. Listen to what Paul says. But he, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Boy, who talks this way? Who thinks this way? Who views life this way? Paul, you cannot be serious, but he is. What must your view of reality and God be like to have the capacity to delight in weakness? It's because he was convinced that with Jesus, everybody has a source of strength outside of themselves. Everybody has a calling, even the most lowly. And everybody has a thorn, even the most exalted. And so the question is, are you gonna say, but I or but God? But I can't or but God can't? Your answer to that question, I'm telling you, it'll determine how you lead the rest of your life. You know, when God called me into ministry, my response to God was, but I can't. But I'm an introvert. But but, but I can't get up in front of people. But I can't speak well. But I'm afraid, but I'm weak, but I feel stressed. And the first time I got up in front of a crowd, God did not take that weakness away from me. First time I preached, God did not take that stress away from me. God did not take the fear away from me. God did not take the feeling away from me. God did not give me any guarantees. But God, as of this week, has kept me going in full-time ministry for 30 years now. But God, but God, amen. You know, if you've been around this church, you also know this church is a but God story. God intervened in the life of this church to keep this church rolling. Started back in 1996 with a small group of believers. It grew for about five, six years. And then this church faced a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. He came in and and divided the church. 
You know, the details are not important, but having watched his tactics, we're well aware of the enemy's schemes and we are on our guard as leadership. The church dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and many people thought we were done. Many people advised us to shut our doors. Many said, we can't, you can't, you can't. But God can, and he did. He rebuilt what Satan sought to mess up. And here we are 17 years later with two locations, three adult worship services, a growing, vibrant children's ministry, a student ministry, reaching lots of lost people, helping believers grow spiritually, and sending a boatload of money out the door to missions where we are reaching thousands upon thousands of people worldwide every single year. Yeah, and believe you me, it wasn't me. I can't, but God. And God's not done with us yet, not by a long shot. He's the one who's blessing this church. So I would say to you, what if we just keep praying boldly, keep serving wholeheartedly, keep dreaming big? We can't, but God can. And what if God were to work in our church and in our city and our nation? What if churches were to start praying together and partnering together so that every man, woman, and child in the greater Austin area and throughout our nation would have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and respond? Imagine what God might do through us all. Now, we can't bring revival to this land, but God, but God, but God. Don't sell him short. You know, imagine 50 years from now for just a moment. Would you do that with me? 50 years from now. 50 years from now, Don Stoops, our associate pastor, would be 117. Okay. <clears throat> he'll be long gone. <clears throat> 50 years from now, Dan Robb, our youth pastor, he'll be in his 90s, probably still doing junior high lock-ins, knowing Dan. 50 years from now, I'll be 103. I might have to preach sitting down, maybe, you know. But, but think about this. What if 50 years from now, people look back on this era and they said, man, there was a day when the greater Austin area was one of the weirdest, most unchurched regions in the nation. But God worked through his people in such a mighty way that now Central Texas has a spiritual vitality that rivals its technological and economic vitality. Yes. That Georgetown and the greater Austin area is as rich spiritually now as it is economically. Why would God not want that? Why would we not want to be a part of that and give ourselves wholly to that? Right? When you pray, when you serve, when you give, when you volunteer, when you reach out and befriend somebody, when you invite somebody who's far from God, when you love somebody, even though you feel like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. And another door opens and another door opens and another door opens. That's our vision collectively as the church. But what about for you personally? What is it in your life personally? This week, would you carry those two words with you? Would you take those words as your words, but God? Not but I, but God. Don't stop dreaming, okay? Don't you give in. Don't you give up. Don't you stop praying. Don't let sin override you. Don't give in to sin. Whatever your hurt or heartache you're facing, when you feel inadequate and you will, when you feel unspiritual and you will, when you feel lonely, confused, afraid, when you know that you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, you're not rich enough, when you feel like a loser nobody, but God, but God, but God. Keep coming back to that. Let's pray. God, as I've been going through Corinthians and reflecting on this now for months, even the last few weeks, so many times for me when I said, but I can't, but I can't, but I can't. And you brought me right back to this. 
And you've said, but I can. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I don't know what it is in their life where they feel like, but I, but I, but I, and it seems hopeless that they would plug in this new equation. But God, but God, but God. Maybe, and I know this is true for a lot of people I talk with, they've given up hope for our nation, for this land. There's no way. It's gone too far. But, but I, but I, but I. But you, God, can transform this land. You can bring a revival. And maybe there are those here that say, but, 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 but I can't. I can't evangelize. I can't reach out and befriend somebody who's lost. I can't. I can't. But God. Maybe it's a marriage. It's just a wreck. Or children who are estranged or grandchildren or just situations going on that just seem hopeless. And we think, but I can't, I can't, I can't. But God. Maybe you're facing addiction. You've been struggling for years. Maybe it's depression and you've tried everything. But I, God, I, but, I, but I've tried reading the Bible. I've tried praying. I've, I've tried getting together with people. I've tried this, that, and the other. But I, but I, but I. Don't give up hope. But God. Maybe it's finances. It's a job. It's, it's money. But I, but I, but I. Lord, whatever the situation is, I pray that we would come back to this little phrase that we see over and over and over again in scriptures. But God. Because with you, all things are possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray.